Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. A, a really interesting discovery one day when he was walking out in his field. He noticed when he was walking one day that there was this really nondescript, what looked to be kind of a rabbit hole uh, in his field. So we went over to investigate it, and when he started investigating it, he realized that there was something much more to this. As he kind of dug around that rabbit hole, what he discovered was that there was a cave uh, that was actually buried uh, uh, in his field. And as he dug even deeper into the cave, he descended and he found a medieval sanctuary that dated all the way back to the 17th century and was connected to a, a 17th century religious order. The sanctuary was, was perfectly preserved. Everything was just as it had been hundreds of years before. And so he brought in many historians who studied it. And they believed that it was a, a place for religious knights and monks to worship secretly on their way to Jerusalem in order to participate in the Crusades. They believed in the medieval church that if you went and fought in the Crusades and managed to win the city of Jerusalem back to Christendom, then you would be forgiven of all your sins. So many joined up in the Crusades, and, and on their way, as they would find this sanctuary, they would descend into the cave and they would find refuge. They would go there to meet God in stillness and in silence. It was described as an underground temple where pilgrims would go in order to meet with God. It reminded me of a, a really important question that, that mankind, that humanity has been asking for centuries, and that is, where should we go or where do we go in order to meet God? 
You see, in ancient societies, people would climb up on mountains, believing that if they got higher up into the skies or, or closer to the atmosphere, that they would get closer to heaven. So they would climb these mountains and they would, they would build altars on the top of mountains in order to meet with God. Years, centuries later, people would build great cathedrals and they would have high vaulted ceilings in order to to give a sense of transcendence to people who worship there. In order, when they came to worship, they would feel that they were in the very presence of God. Others would make pilgrimages to holy lands. Some would, would travel to sacred rivers and bathe themselves in sacred rivers. Other would, others would retreat into to silence and solitude and contemplation for weeks on end. All of it in an attempt to meet with God. Some today reject this idea at all, the idea that we can go somewhere and objectively meet with God. Instead, they say the only place to really meet with God is to look inside of us. There's no objectivity to it. It's only a subjective experience. We look for God inside of us. But either way, mankind for centuries has continued to ask this question, where do we go in order to meet with God? For the Jews in Jesus' day, they had a very clear answer to this question. If we are going to meet with God, the place that we go to is the temple. The temple is the place where we meet God. The temple is the place where we experience forgiveness. So this place, this physical place of the temple became incredibly important to the Jews. If you were with us last week, we saw Jesus open his last week, and we saw this text that's often called the the triumphal entry. But on that Sunday, that wasn't the only triumphal entry that was happening in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus, amongst uh, with many other pilgrims, were traveling into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, a sacred holiday to the Jewish people. And Jews would travel from all over the world in order to participate in this Passover feast. In fact, a lot of historians believed that the population of Jerusalem would grow from about 40,000 people to about 200,000 people just in order to celebrate this Passover feast. So because of that, because of so many people, there would have to be another triumphal entry that happened that Sunday. To maintain the peace, the Romans would send in a battalion of soldiers in the city and they would try to to keep the Jews from becoming too rowdy in their Passover festival. And that battalion no doubt included Pontius Pilate, who becomes a key figure towards the end of the week in the life of Jesus. These two entries looked very different. One entry was full of pomp and circumstance. It was full of might and military power. The other was humble and meek, celebrated amongst the poor, amongst peasants who were traveling into Jerusalem to experience God. That was all on Sunday. And then on Monday, our passage tells us that Jesus does something incredibly unexpected. On Monday, Jesus enters into this temple, this sacred place, this important place, and he becomes disruptive. 
The passage tells us he turns over tables and he disrupts all the commerce that is happening in the temple. He drives out people from the temple and he begins to to interfere with the, the routine that the temple worshipers were involved in. And then suddenly he just sits down. He sits down and then begins to to teach the people about the kingdom of God. And and it says this in the passage, an incredibly almost understatement. All the crowd was astonished. Not just at what Jesus was saying, but what Jesus was doing. They were bewildered. They were amazed. They were astonished at what Jesus was doing. And no one quite knew what to make of it. I can imagine Jesus' disciples sitting around with one another, scratching their heads, wondering what just happened here, that Jesus would be so disruptive and then just sit down and start teaching people. And the fact is, it's in some ways challenging for us today, whenever we come to this passage and we think about this, it really feels unexpected and out of character for Jesus. And, and part of it could have to do with the fact that we often embrace many misunderstandings when it comes to who Jesus was and why, we was here, why he was here. Flannery O'Connor said that we live in a Christ-haunted age. And what she meant by that is that even if we are not a Christian, we at least have to come to terms in our culture with an opinion about who Jesus was and why he was here. Some studies have found that most of us tend to lock into our picture of who Jesus was right around the age of 10 or 12. I think it's why what's going on back there in some ways is just as important as what is going on in here. Because we all lock into an understanding of who we think Jesus was at a very young age. And often we settle into a picture of Jesus as someone who was entirely meek and mild. Someone who was entirely lowly and weak. But this, this, what we read here today, is incredibly unexpected. And in some ways out of character. Jesus seems to to be reacting in some sort of fit of rage. He often seems so calm and composed most of the time, but this seems so irrational. And what are we to make of it as we read it today? I think the key comes in understanding what exactly prompted this in Jesus. What was Jesus reacting to in this moment? What had gotten him so upset? And I think there's really two things that Jesus is reacting to in his passage. The first is he is really reacting to the corruption of the temple. The corruption of this place that had become so sacred. You see, originally the temple was to be a place where people went and met with God, where they could experience in a unique way the presence of God and in some ways the forgiveness of God as well. But by Jesus' day, it had changed, it had morphed into something that was incredibly different than it was originally intended to be. You see, when the Romans took over, they didn't want the the responsibility of managing the day-to-day workings of the people groups in which they had conquered. So what they would do is they would allow a certain measure of self-government for these people groups. And for the Jews, it meant that the sacred office of the high priest took on a very different meaning. 
You see, the high priest originally was, was the one who was supposed to lead uh, worship, the one that was supposed to lead the sacrificial system for God's people. But under the Roman rule, the high priest took under a more political role in this first century. And what, what that meant is that politics were mixed with religion. And often when politics gets mixed with religion a lot of corrupt things end up happening. The high priest became Roman collaborators who would line their pockets with all sorts of money and land and privileges as a result. And it made the the temple into this staggering place of commerce. Many historians believed at this point uh, 3,000 sheep would be sold in just one day. And often the proceeds would go to line the pockets of these high priests. What happened was it led to a very small few amount of people who had all the economic, religious, and political domination over the rest of everyone else. So what was intended to be a place of worship had become a place of injustice. And religion, or the veneer of religion, was used to defend this system of domination and this system of injustice. Sadly, this has happened many times throughout human history. When religion has been abused and used to give religious justification to all sorts of unjust things. One commentator said this, he said the temple had become the center of power for the nobility who dominated, controlled, indoctrinated, and exploited others who ranked lower on the social scale. The temple preserved the status quo by extending privilege to the few and by resisting the transforming power of the kingdom of God in society. It was the very source of much of the injustice of society in Jesus' day. So Jesus, no doubt, walking into the temple that day, probably knowing it was his last week, walking into the temple that day, was overcome when he observed all the injustice that was in front of him. What was supposed to be a place where God was experienced had now become the center of abuse and exploitation. It says in verse 17, Jesus said this, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. This, of course, angered those people who were in power. Anytime you threaten systems of injustice and power, you end up sticking your hand into the hornet's nest. And the powers that be in Jesus' day concluded after this that Jesus must die. We must do everything in our power to get rid of him. But I think more was going on here than just a reaction to injustice. Because I think though Jesus was reacting to that, there's something even deeper that Jesus is trying to communicate through this story. He's trying to say that he himself has come to change things. That he himself is actually the new temple. The place where we go to meet with God. 
What's interesting is, 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 is Mark, the, the gospel writer, wraps this story into, into another story about a fig tree. It's like a, a lived parable that, that Mark wraps this temple incident within in order to help us understand what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Before this temple incident, Jesus comes upon a fig tree, Mark tells us, and it tells us that, that Jesus was hungry, so he goes before the, pig, the fig tree, but the fig tree is, is barren. It has no fruit, so what Jesus does is he curses the fig tree, which seems really bizarre to us as well. Doesn't Jesus have an environmental conscience, and, and isn't it sad that he would curse a fig tree here? But it's interesting also that this is his last recorded miracle, that he would curse this fig tree. The passage tells us that that later the next day his followers come up on the same tree and they see that that tree has withered and died. Now why does Mark do this? Why does he wrap one story in the midst of another story? Why does he put this temple incident within this other story? And I think it's because what Mark is doing is he's trying to illustrate for us why Jesus did what he did when he was in the temple. You see, the temple was to be the place where people went to meet with God. It was a place where people went to experience forgiveness, but in Jesus' day, it had become barren. It had become fruitless, just like that fig tree was. Even worse, the temple had had become a place of false security. It it promised much, but in the end, it had given nothing. You see, the Jews in in Jesus' day believed that as long as they went through the outward ritual of worship and sacrifices and festivals, then they would be okay with God. As long as they checked off all those religious boxes, everything would be good. But with the arrival of Christ, all of that had been revealed as barren and fruitless. Jesus, in his teaching here, quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. He quotes from from Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 29. And if you go back to Jeremiah 7, there's a refrain that keeps coming up all throughout that prophetic passage. And and, And the refrain is this, do not trust in deceptive words. See, what Jesus is getting at is the key concept here, the key idea is what is being trusted in. Jesus was so upset because the people were trusting in what had become a lie. They were trusting in deceptive words. They believed that their standing before God was all about their religiosity, all about their outward performance, and they had built their lives around it. They had built their security around it, but they had built their security and their lives around a lie. They built their entire faith on a a false security, on a foundation that was cracked, that was false, and could not bear the weight. Friends, the truth is, we face the same temptation that they did then. The question is, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your religious performance to get you into God's presence, into his favor, into his good graces? Are you building your life around your spiritual resume? Have you discovered that you've lost all the joy in life because it seems to be all about duty and performance? 
If so, then you are trusting in a lie. You are trusting in deceptive words. You're trying to build your security in a barren and fruitless place. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, John's account of this story adds a whole nother dialogue. And in that dialogue, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I, would, I will raise it up. Now, when Jesus said that, nobody knew what he meant. Nobody had a clue what he meant. So what John does is he later, he, he explains what Jesus says. In verse 21, John says this. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus is the new temple. The other ways have grown barren and fruitless. Jesus is the place, the only place to meet God and to experience forgiveness. But his temple, his body, would need to be destroyed in order for you and I to be rescued. Friends, do you want to meet with God? Do you want to go to the place where you can find God Well, we meet God in Jesus, whose body was destroyed for us? On Friday, just days later, his body would be broken. The temple of the curtain would be torn in two. And yet on Sunday, the temple of his body would be raised from the dead. So what does all this mean for us? What, is it, how should, what should we take away from this, this day in the life of Jesus? Well, I think there's really two things. The first is that God calls us to let go of all attempts at false security and instead to embrace Christ, the only source of true security. It's calling us to let go of all the duty and the performance, the constant anxiety of always trying to measure up And to rest secure in Jesus. To trust in him. To stop believing a lie and trust in him. The only true source of security. I think the second takeaway that we can take from this passage. This one is a little scarier than even the first one. That is this. That we ought to recognize that Jesus is in the business of disruption. He wants to overturn the tables of all the lesser things that we tend to build our lives around. Sometimes he has to step in and disrupt the lies that we believe in order for us to be able to embrace the truth. Sometimes he has to step in and break the false foundations before he can set us on a secure one. Friends, if you are looking for a Jesus who will simply leave you in control and rubber stamp your agenda for your life, then don't look to the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus never promises that he will get on board with your agenda. Instead, what he does promise is holy disruption. I've been hanging around churches for a long time, and one of the things that churches a lot of times like to do is, is bring people up, and they share testimonies. They, they share stories about what God is doing in their lives, and, and many of them are very beautiful. But they often go like this. I once was really bad, 
And then I met Jesus, and now everything is wonderful. Everything is rainbow and sunshines, and everything uh, goes wonderfully. For once, I would just like someone to get up in church and say this. I was doing just fine. My life was going wonderfully, and then Jesus came along and he disrupted all of it. Jesus came along and he overturned the tables of my life, and he made me question everything that I built my life around. And if it wasn't bad enough that he did it right at the moment of salvation, he keeps doing it. He keeps entering into my life time and time again for as long as I've been in relationship with him. But you know what? It's a glorious disruption. A disruption that has led to greater fruit and greater life where once there was only barrenness. Friends, the Jesus of the Bible is a great disruptor. But at the end of the day, he is the only path to true fruit, to true security, and to true life. I read these words. Very, very rarely do I add on to a sermon on a Sunday morning, but I opened up the Bible, and these were the first words I read this morning. So I will leave, these with, leave you with these words. Hosea 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Let's pray.